0: Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be present in the hearts of those who are hurting this morning, men and women who have lost family members, who are maybe in the process of losing husbands and wives and sons and daughters. Holy Spirit, heal us. Give us hope where we have no hope. Heavenly Father, show us in your word this morning how your son is hope, how there is everlasting hope, Lord, that supersedes even our wildest dreams. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would cling to you
1: this morning. I ask it in your name. Amen. Good morning. A passage this morning is from um, the first epistle of Peter, chapter 1, from verses 1 to 5. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated.
0: Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace. Thank you for choosing to worship with us here this morning. We're so glad that you came. We are starting our new series in First Peter. This is going to take us all the way through the new year, just after January. I think there's one sermon scheduled for the first of the year, and so this is we're going to be camped here for a while. And the title of this series is "Where is your hope?" If you look at the graphic here, there's all sorts of words which are grayed out, but everybody has their hope placed in something or someone. Uh, that's that's what we're going to be looking at through 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 this series, um, but. I want to look just ahead. Jump a. This is not the verse we're going to cover this morning, but it's it's a few weeks down the road. First Peter chapter three verse fifteen. Peter says, "But in your hearts, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect." As I said, we'll get to that verse uh, many many weeks from now. But Peter says, listen, you need to be ready to give a defense for the hope. Give a reason for the hope that's in you. Here's the deal. Every single one of you has your hope placed in something. All of you. All of you. Some of you are like, well, I don't, I'm not a Christian. I I don't pretend to know what you believe. But regardless of what you believe, every single human being longs for and places their hope in something. You're living for something. You're living for something. The question is what? The question is what? That's that's the essence of of, of, of what it means to be human. The, the, the word hope, it has a lot of different connotations in English. Sometimes, sometimes we mean wish. When we say my hope, what we really mean is wish. Uh, I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon because I have plans. Or I hope the Cubs win the World Series. That's a vain hope, but it's 2016 and 1908. It wasn't so bad, but after that, it, it, that hope wanes. It's a, it's a wish. It's a wish. That's not what we're talking about. That's not the meaning of the word hope that, that Peter uses. The, the word hope, as, as Peter is using it, this is a definition from from biblical counselor, author, and, and speaker Paul Tripp. Hope is a confident expectation of a guaranteed result that changes the way that you live. Let me read that again. Hope is a confident expectation of a guaranteed result that changes the way that you live. You see, this kind of hope that all of us have, and it's placed in something, this is what drives you. This is what drives you. When you face Not if, but when you face difficulty, this hope is what pushes you through that pain. When you want to quit, this is what gets you out of bed in the morning. This this is what this hope does. Now, again, I haven't addressed what that hope is in because this is just the essence of what it means to hope, generically speaking. You follow me? But what happens when you lose hope? What happens when when there is no hope it's interesting interesting's a not the right word, but it's the best I can do uh, it's interesting, strange, ironic that we live in the most prosperous nation in the history of the world, and yet the people in the in western civilization are decreasing in hope every single year have you noticed this is this is a trend in our culture that there is a growing sense of hopelessness especially among the younger generation and i no longer am in that generation i'm 55 so the younger you get the more the greater the sense of hopelessness and anxiety there is is this You've noticed this, yes? There's a a popular blogger, writer, I want to call him a pop philosopher. He's written a number of books on the New York Times bestsellers, and all of the titles contain profanity, so I can't actually say, well, I could, but I'll get emails. Um, his name is Mark Manson, and he 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 writes in the beginning of one of his books that if he were a Starbucks barista, instead of writing the names of the individuals who order their coffee or their latte, he says, this is what I would write on the sleeve of every cup of coffee that I serve. One day, you and everyone you love will die. And beyond a small group of people for an extremely brief period of time, Little of what you say or do will ever matter. This is the uncomfortable truth of life. And everything you think or do is but an elaborate avoidance of it. We are inconsequential cosmic dust bumping and milling about on a tiny blue speck. We imagine our own importance. We invent our purpose. We are nothing. He also said he'd have to write that in really small print. (laughs) And I also wrote that that would make him unemployable. That may not be your worldview. But with each increasing year, that is more a prevalent worldview in our culture. And the younger you are, the more likely you are to actually kind of find that worldview to be, yeah, that's what I believe. Hence, a sense of hopelessness. Now, irony of ironies, all of his books, that's what he truly believes, but all of his books that he writes are all about how to create meaning for yourself in a meaningless world so that you can get through the next day. So, even, even this individual who says your life is meaningless, he says, for you to have hope to get out of bed the next day, you need to find for yourself what matters most to you. <laughs> okay. Have a nice day, you're dust, and everyone you love is going to die, and your life is meaningless, but have hope. In what? In your career, in your relationships, in your ethics, in your morals. Does anybody not see the futility in that? My goal, contrary to the introduction of this sermon and the sermon series, is not to depress you beyond your wildest dreams. <laughs> but to the contrary, to to give us hope, to find hope. So three things that we're going to look at this morning. First of all, where hope isn't because we're looking for it and everybody here has placed their hope in something or someone. So we're going to first of all, see where, where this hope isn't found, this, this hope, which is, is actually substantial and not invented. Uh, Then we're going to take a look at, well, where is it actually found? Where do we find it? And then lastly, how do we obtain it? Assuming there is such a thing which is real, we're not inventing it just so that we can cope, but there is something which is called hope, which is actually genuine, which is real, it's substantial, it's it's eternal, it's lasting. Where is it at? And then how do we get it? Those are two different questions, and we have to understand how how, how both are answered. So open up your Bibles to First Peter chapter one. Let's pray and and get to the text and ask the Holy Spirit to lead us to that hope. Father, we come to you because we are a people in need of hope. And as Josh prayed earlier as he tossed aside the script, the fact of the matter is there are people here right now who are in deep, abiding, emotional, sometimes physical pain. Lord, there is a sense of hopelessness that pervades our culture even though we are affluent and prosperous. There's pain there's a sense of meaninglessness in our, in our world. Lord, we need you to speak to us. You're the God who designed us. You made us for a purpose. And we pray father that your Holy spirit would show us the purpose for which we are designed that we might find hope, not hope in our own abilities, not hope in our, our own morality, uh, but hope that is unfading kept in heaven, which is uh, imperishable. Lord, Spirit, we are asking you to show us that hope and give us that hope and lead us to that hope. Energize, enliven our hearts. Father, we pray this that Christ might be honored and that we might be the beneficiaries of that hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's take a look at the first two verses. Uh, This is written um, by the Apostle Peter. By the Apostle Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's the author. To whom is he writing? Let's keep looking. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Let's just pause right here. Elect exiles. He's not speaking to a group of political appointees who have been elected as representatives of their states or their regions for any type of government. He's talking about, he's talking about those whom God has chosen and set apart for his own purpose. The word elect means chosen. It, it, it means elect, the Greek word rather, chosen, elect, or picked out among a group. Picked out among a group. Now, it's beyond the scope of this particular sermon to talk about how that all works. But these are individuals that have been chosen, that have been chosen by God. But that's not the only, uh, that's not the only word that he uses to describe them. There's a word that modifies uh, the word elect. It's uh, elect exiles, or rather elect modifies the, the, uh, the noun exile. So these, these exiles, they've been chosen. They've been set apart. They've been chosen. They've been set apart. It's, it's, it's an interesting word. This word exile, it, it's, it's sometimes translated, if you have a King James Version Bible, it, I think it's translated sojourner, sojourner. It can also be uh, translated and sometimes is translated in the New Testament, even in the ESV, as stranger, stranger. It means someone who resides in a place temporarily. It's not their home. It's not their home. So these individuals are are elect exiles, But but there's more to it. They're not just chosen by God and they're in a place that's not technically their home. It also says exiles of the what? Dispersion. Dispersion. So these individuals, these individuals are more than likely, I can't prove this from the text, but more than likely, these are individuals which Peter... And the rest of the apostles ministered to in Jerusalem when the church was born, so Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again, and he appeared to uh, Peter and, and the women first, but then Peter and then the other apostles, and then more than five hundred people paul says in in first Corinthians chapter fifteen and and then then He ascended, and before he ascended into heaven, he said, I want you, he's speaking to his his disciples, I want you to go and I want you to wait in Jerusalem... Until you are empowered from on high, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. So they all go to Jerusalem and they're praying 10 days. They are holed up in the upper room and they're praying. And then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the apostles, upon the disciples. They begin to preach. They begin to teach 3000 individuals come to Christ in one day and the church is born and it begins to explode. There are more and more Jewish Jewish followers who are becoming Christ followers day by day by day. Until the hammer drops, until the hammer drops and the persecution starts with the, with the person named Saul, who is eventually we know as Paul and the first martyr, Stephen in Acts chapter eight, verse one, it says that when the persecution began, all the Jews that were in Jerusalem because of Pentecost, who had now become Christians. They're Jews from every nation were there in Jerusalem. All these Jews, which were they didn't want to go home after they received Jesus. Well, once the hammer dropped and people started dying for their faith, now would be a good time to go home. So they're now they're dispersed. They're dispersed. They're on the run. They're on the run. This is who Peter is addressing: those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the basis by which they're elected, in the sanctification of the Spirit and the purpose for which they're elected, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, there is a lot there that I could choose to focus on, and I'm not going to focus on everything, but I want to focus on, just for a moment, where hope is not found, where hope is not found, they don't, they aren't, they didn't find or locate hope that actually is substantial here. They're exiles, they see themselves as sojourners, strangers. They, they see themselves as not belonging to this world that, they're, that they find themselves in. They don't, they don't fit. They don't fit. The Jewish Christians, which are reading this first, they have in their, in their history uh, an understanding of what it means to be an, a people exiled. A people exiled. In the time of Jeremiah, the prophet... Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon swept into Jerusalem, overtook Jerusalem, and 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 took and took uh, and took Judea captive, and they were literally exiled to Babylon. You've, you've heard of Daniel and the Lion's Den and all of that. Daniel is a Jewish exile. Jeremiah the prophet is a Jewish exile. That was the time. Of the exile. It was a time of mourning. They didn't fit in. They were Jews in a Babylonian culture. And they, that's not where they belong. But that's where they found themselves. They didn't want to be there. But deal with it. This is who Peter's writing to. And this is who's reading this. Right here in this room. In North Liberty. You may have carved out a little niche here in North Liberty, Coralville, Iowa City, Cedar Rapids, the corridor area. You may have carved out a niche and you are bound and determined to make this your home. I, I'm not a philosopher and I'm not nihilistic. And I'm not an existentialist, but I do agree with Mark Manson. One day... Everyone you love will die. And everything that you are building a foundation on right now on this earth will perish. There are no exceptions. I don't say that. Well, no, that's a lie. I say that because I want to shock you. I was going to say that I say that not to shock you. And that's totally false. I want to grab you by the shoulders and help you see that. We are exiles. And this is not our home. This isn't our home. Keep reading. We're not going to get to this this week, but I just want to lurch ahead a few chapters, a few verses. This is common language throughout the book that we're studying. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, And if you call on him his father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This isn't your home. This isn't your home. First Peter 2 verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now here, Peter is acknowledging the reality that, yeah, this isn't your home, but your flesh sure thinks it is and sure gears you to act as if this is all there is. And, and that tendency will destroy your soul. And then in another book that we studied a couple years back, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 through 16, the author writes, These all died in faith, speaking of the Old Testament saints, Abraham and Isaac and, and, and Samson and, and a whole list of people, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers... And exiles on the earth for people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking that of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. See, this this is the theme of 1 Peter. He's writing to people who are suffering and part of the reason they're suffering is because they're not home yet they're living their their context we're going to see this next week and the weeks to come their context is they are a sect of judaism they're a minority of a minority in a world which is dominated by paganism and ruled by the romans it's not cool to be christian it's not cool to be Christian within the Jewish community and it's doubly uncool to be a, a Christian in Roman society. They're they're despised by everyone. <laughs> they can't win. I know you all think you're in a culture war and to an extent there's some truth in that but someone at Target Refusing to say Merry Christmas is not persecution. (laughs) Okay. Now it could get worse. Probably will get worse. And I'm not saying there's not, but understand that the original audience knows what it means to, to be in a physical world and not feel at home and to be hated by everyone precisely because of what they believe. So that's the negative where hope isn't where hope is. Jump ahead to one verse. We looked at the first two. Let's look at verse three here. And this is as far as we're going to get. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, verses four through the rest of the chapter explain a great deal more about what that living hope is, but just, I'm just i just going to tap the brakes and stop. So our hope is not found, our hope is not found here in, in our jobs, in our, our, our relationships, as good as they are. By the way, these things which we often place our hopes in, which are, are found locally, terrestrially, they're not necessarily bad or sinful in and of themselves. So please don't hear me say that. Some of you are like, "Well, my hope is in raising a good family." That's a great thing. That's a great thing. It's not sinful, but it's an utterly vain hope. <laughs> just talk to somebody who is just lamenting the fact that her girls have all graduated and moved away. It's called life, right? So. These things, as good as they are, are not substantially reasonable things to place our hopes in. Now, what what Peter is saying is that God, according to his great mercy, that's the impetus. It's because he's merciful. You know what the word mercy means? It means that his guts churn for us. In other words, he looks at our pathetic state and he feels, he emotes, And he acts on that and has compassion or mercy. And because of that, he has caused us to be born again. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, let's jump ahead here. First Peter one thirteen. This is next week. We'll get to it. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and be sober and being sober minded. Set your hope. That this is this is a conscious decision. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then again, First Peter chapter one verse twenty and twenty one. He was forsaken; that is Jesus, before the fo- or foreknown before the foundation of the world. But he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. That your faith and hope are in God. So this is where this is where hope. This is where hope is found. It is found in the person. It's found in the person of Christ. Now, I want to just pause here. Look at a couple different objections to this. First of all is the secular objection. The secular objection, this is stated by uh, philosopher Karl Marx, German philosopher, who is considered to be the Oh, I guess the founder of communism, if you will. Atheistic Jew. That sounds like an oxymoron, but that's what he was. He says, religion is the opium of the people. It's a sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of our soulless conditions. There's a lot there to unpack. I'm not going to unpack all of it, but in fairness to Karl Marx, he's not speaking to religion as you typically think of it. He's speaking about religion as a state sponsored thing, which, which corrals the masses and, and keeps them, keeps them under the thumb of the aristocracy. That's not so much what we see in America, but nonetheless, he viewed religion in general as an opioid. It's something which, which dulls your senses and it, it, it removes it, 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 it takes away your ability to, to grasp a hold of reason, so real morphine or opioids if, if you hurt yourself or you 've had surgery or there 's some some condition, some painful condition, when you take opioids, the pain receptors are are, are firing up to your brain, saying hey, there 's a problem this hurts. So if you, so, so it just is, and it throbs. And so these opium, it doesn't fix anything. It doesn't fix anything. It just, it, it causes your mind. It it, it interrupts the sensory input and the distribution of input from your, from your foot to your brain. And you don't feel what is really happening. And he says, that's what religion does. it it just kind of gives people this it gives them hope, but it 's not real it 's not real it 's just it's it 's an opioid it 's morphine it 's oxycodone it's what, whatever whatever your drug of choice is your the opioid crisis is he would say the opioid crisis of his day is not morphine, but it 's religion keeps people oppressed, keeps people willingly submissive to a state-sponsored government uh, and religious system that that only is in it for the elite. And by the way, in some sense, he was correctly seeing a problem. There was religious oppression and the state-sponsored religions of his day were, in fact, in bed with the government and there was oppression. And it's not a good it's it's not it's not a badge of honor for for the church of his time in his region but that attitude presses on today, you can, you can see that in the Richard Dawkins, you can see that in Sam Harris, you can see that in, in a lot of individuals who, who look at, at people of faith and think that they're just simpletons, they're just, they're grabbing onto something which isn't really there, and it's a false hope, it just helps them not deal with reality. It, fine, religion's good for you, it helps you get through your suffering, that's all fine and good, but it's the same effect as opium. You can get through the day, but you're not dealing with reality. It's the Mark Masons of the world who write on their Starbucks cup. That's dealing with reality. So that's reality. That's the objection. Now, probably most of you don't fit into that category of secular objectors. You, you probably know many people who do. Some of them are your loved ones, Some of them are your people you work with, you go to school with, and your professors, things like that. They're they're all over. They're all over. And that doesn't make them bad people. It's just that's just what they believe. But where are most of you at? Where are most of us at? I think by and large, there are a number of objectors here that are not secular. You're you're religious objectors to this idea of being strangers in this world or exiles. In one sense, you aren't, but but you are. Let, just let's take a look. Christian objection is: I want my best life here, and I want it now. You heard this phrase before. I, I, I want my best life now. I want my best life here now. In this world, my hope is here now. yes, Jesus died for me and I'm really grateful that when I do die, I'll be with him. But that's not what I'm living for. I'm living for the here and the now. Now it's doubtful that many of you would actually scribble that out as an objection. I bet I wouldn't get emails. If I didn't throw this up, I bet I wouldn't get many emails from Christians saying, no, my whole, I don't like, I don't appreciate you calling me an exile. I don't appreciate Peter calling me an exile in a sojourner because I've, I've staked out my claim. I've planted my flag. I've dug the foundation and this world is my home. My best life is here. My best life is now. I doubt I'd get emails. But the way many of us live our lives betrays the fact that that's exactly what we believe. And we read Peter with a little bit of, yeah, yeah, whatever. But what really gives me hope is, see how that works? And if you feel bad, because that's reality, you're in good company because that's the way Peter felt too. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. Let's take a look at two types of hope. First is a confessional hope, which many of you have. And then there's a functional hope, which shows what you really hope in. So in Matthew chapter 16, take a look at Peter, the author of the, the letter we're reading. And, and Jesus, he asks the, uh, the disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man in? This is verse 13 of chapter 16 of Matthew. And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So just stop right there. That's his confessional hope. His confessional hope, Peter's confessional hope, is in the person and the work of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is the anointed Messiah. That's his confession. He is not insincere. He truly believes that Jesus is the Messiah. That's his confessional hope. And 30 seconds later, he lets us know where his real hope is his functional hope Jump down to verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside. Never take Jesus aside. Just as a note. (laughs) He, him aside. His aim here is to correct him. He took him aside and began to rebuke him. That's a really strong word, rebuke, saying, "Far be it from you, Lord!" Exclamation point. This shall never happen to you. And then Jesus turns to Peter and says, "Get behind me, Satan! You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind." on the things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, Peter on one minute, your confessional hope is orthodox and it's spot on. You can sing. It is well with my soul. And then I listen to the words that come out of your mouth and you totally betray where your real hope is set, which is on this world. Say, Brooks. What do you mean? Here's, here's the deal. Peter saw Jesus as the Jewish Messiah who had come to reform the world. In Peter's mind, Jesus was the Messiah, but the purpose for which the Messiah had come was to make this world livable. Was the staff right now is thinking, don't say it, Brooks, don't say it. Because I asked them, should I say it? And they all said no. So I'm not going to say it, but I'm, I'm going to dance around it. No. No, I'm not. Be quiet. Stop provoking me. (laughs) Peter believed that Jesus had come to make Israel the way it used to be under King David. That's what he believed. He was going to, to pull Israel out of the ashes... And to lift them up. To be a city on a hill. To be a nation. Not dominated by Rome. Not, not, not influenced by corruption. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. But a pure, holy, righteous nation. That would rule all other nations. And Peter and the rest of these disciples. They envisioned that they were going to be right there with him. Ruling with him. He saw this as a as As earthly power. That's what he believed. On the one hand, his confessional hope was orthodox, and his functional hope was completely out to lunch. And Jesus calls him on it. And you know he calls him something. He says, Get behind me what? What's he what's he call him? Yeah, he called him Satan, not Fred. Not Billy. Not Simon, not Peter, Satan. This idea that that Jesus has come to give him, Peter, his best life now, in here, it is utterly satanically inspired. Is that not how many Christians view Jesus' role in their life? So we can whine and complain about the Richard Dawkins and about the secularists who mock our faith. But how about the believers in the orthodoxy of Jesus as the Messiah who live as if they are making this world their home? How do we possess it? Okay, we've identified where it's not, Peter has shown it where it is. How do we get it? How do we get it? How do you go from, okay, I got this confessional hope, but it's not really my functional hope. How do you, ma- how do you wed the two? How does the two become one? How does our functional hope become our confessional hope and vice versa? How, does, how, do, how do we gain that hope which is unshakable? Which, well, you got to be born again. Now some of you are like, I don't like that term. I'm not a born again Christian, but I'm a Christian. There isn't any other kind of Christian. That's an oxymoron. There's only one. Born again is not describing a flavor of Christianity, it's not a denomination. It's, it's, it's the process by which someone who is not. A follower of Christ becomes a follower of Christ. It's a process by which someone who is dead in their sins becomes alive in Christ. It's the process by which someone who is utterly spiritually blind has their eyes opened. It's a process by which someone who is standing on a dead hope, which is no hope at all, and becomes to be standing on the foundation of a living hope, which is Christ. It's a process. When When someone is born into this world, it's called labor. It's called a delivery. They come into this world. And anyone who has a living hope has been through that labor process. I'm working on it. (laughs) But follow, follow. How does this work? Something's got to die first. (laughs) This is the painful part. Before I can be born again, I was born again in 1988. Some of you aren't sure when you were born again, but you know you're born again, and that's all that matters. But before anyone, and some of you are not born again, you are not in the kingdom, you are not, your functional hope is not in Jesus. Before you can be born again, something's got to die. And here's the painful reality. What has to die is our old functional hopes. and that's never Jesus doesn't use morphine when our hopes die and when they die they hurt and we feel that loss we feel it as grief there's all sorts of things are here's the thing to be born again into a living hope starts with seeing our earthly hopes for what they are transient At best, by the way, I'm not saying these things are bad. Do not hear me? I'm not labeling these things as sin. It's important that you hear that. The relationship, the marriage that you banked on as being the source of your happiness, when that goes south and fails, your hope dies. It turns out that that relationship can give your life meaning. Why? It wasn't designed to. Recently, a friend of mine lost her husband, and I preached his funeral. He was my friend. And she was already born again, but that illustrates the fact that that the the relationship which she cherished, it's, it's transient at best. There are individuals that are here in this audience. You've lost your children. It should never be that way, but it is so and you know that it is a vain hope to place your hope in a child. Some of you have placed your hope in your, your accomplishments and your endeavors and you have given your life to the accomplishment of something noble, thinking that when you get that one thing, then your life will have meaning. And here's, here's the death of that hope. For some of you, you didn't reach your dreams, you didn't get your goals and it hurt And that hope died. But here's a scary reality. Some of you got what you wanted and you recognized you've climbed the ladder of success and you realize the ladder's leaning on the wrong building. And there's a little bit of you that dies in that moment because you think, what have I done all this for? What is this all about? Some of you don't have these grand ambitions. You just want to be a good person, and that's what you've put your hope in. And you've striven, and you've tried to be good, and you've tried to be that good person. You've tried to please your parents. You've tried to please this person. You've tried to please that person. And then you look yourself in the mirror, and what you see is moral failure, and you can't undo that. And the hope that you would make yourself someone who is truly righteous has just, it's, it's been burned up and your hope dies. But I have good news. I have good news. None of those things which you have banked on as your functional hope can actually become something that will satisfy you. Because as good as all those things are, none of those things are substantial and they can't buoy you up. They won't give you a sense of peace in the storm. And no, I'm not talking about morphine. I'm not talking about something that's not true that helps us get through what's tough. I'm talking about something that is true that helps us endure. So something has to die, but then something has to be reborn. For Peter, the death of his functional hope was when in the courtyard that day, when he's warming his hands by the fire. Jesus had been arrested and he got into the courtyard and the first person said, Hey, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? And he said, no, 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 I'm not. And then later on he's warming himself by the fire and someone says, Hey, you're, you're one of his disciples. No, 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 I'm not. And a third time you are one of his disciples because you have an accent. You're a Galilean. And then Peter calls down curses on himself. I swear blankety blank, 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 blank. I am not a follower of Jesus. And then he hears the rooster crow and then he locks his eyes on Jesus and he is crushed. Because his functional hope, he realized at that moment is utterly dead. He has betrayed his confessional savior. And he recognizes that he's not the man he thought he was. And he, for a moment, thinks that Jesus is not the man that he thought he was. And his hope was dead. And his hope was buried. And then three days later, his hope was reborn because Christ arose from the grave, triumphant over sin and over death. There are many of you right now who are in desperate pain for various reasons. Your own moral failure, the loss of a loved one, economic disaster, Your health is a shambles. And you look till next week and you look to the month after and you're thinking to yourself, I don't know if I can nor if I want to go on. And here's the good news. You are a stranger and an exile in this land. And Jesus has purchased you with his blood. And if you would let that hope in this world die and receive him as your savior you would be anchored with something you can never, ever lose. Not only will you never lose it, but it will steal your resolve to become the kind of person who can love your neighbors, your family, and your enemy in a way that brings glory to your Savior. And that is a living hope that can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. So if you have not received Christ as your Savior, I would implore you today to cry out to Him. Say, Lord Jesus, I've placed my hope in a million other things except You. I don't even know where my hope is, but I want it to be in You. Wash me, Cleanse me, forgive me of my sins, and make me the person you desire me to be. And the word says that he will never leave you nor will he forsake you. And for some of you, that is your reality, but functionally not so much. There's things which are competing for your hope, and you've, you've planted your flag. You got, you got your feet in the world and in the kingdom, and the continent is shifting, and you're got to pull a groin. It's not pretty. It's, it's not, it doesn't work. It's not, it, it doesn't functionally work to have your feet planted in both places. Choose the life of an exile. More on what that looks like as we go through the series. But recognize where your hope is. If that's something that if you desire to do today to, to become a follower of Christ, I want to encourage you to... There's a card in front of you. It says believe. Take it out. Fill it out. Let us know. We'd like to pray with you. We'd like to encourage you. You can say, contact me via email or or via text. But I want to know what it means to take this first step in in following Christ. I want to know what it means to be born again. I want to make sure that I'm born again. I want to make sure that I'm in Christ. And I don't want to walk this journey alone. Let us know. Fill that card out. You can drop it off as you leave in, in in the offering boxes. Or you can come forward and talk to me or some of the elders here. And regardless of whether or not you've trusted Christ, if you're just heavy burdened and you're just carrying some burdens that you just can't carry alone and you'd like someone to pray with you, I would encourage you to come forward after I dismiss and there'll be people up here to pray with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you have given us a living hope in the person of Christ. Jesus, you are to be worshipped and we worship you. Father, I pray that you would draw all men unto yourself, men, women, children, that we would find our functional hope and our confessional hope to be one and the same in the finished work of Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen. God bless, go in grace, and we will see you next week.